2: You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. I try to resist the labels only because
1: I feel like the labels actually hide what really matters, which is what are the individual stories that are at stake. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. You just heard the voice of my friend, James Forman Jr., who is, among other things, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and expert on incarceration reform, which is an important part of my vision for the Manhattan DA's office. James and I were talking recently about how previous sentencing reform efforts have focused on people who received excessive sentences for things like selling drugs. And as we were discussing how to approach sentencing for quote-unquote violent offenders versus quote-unquote nonviolent ones, James said something that's been stuck in my head ever since. A label, I feel, keeps us even from looking at the individual story that is actually what the criminal process
0: has to be about and deserves to be about.
1: In the spirit of that conversation, Today, I wanted to share a story about a man whose case has haunted me ever since his file came across my desk back when I was general counsel to the Brooklyn District Attorney. It's a story about a young man named Derek who, in the early 90s, was homeless and struggling with an addiction to crack cocaine. And over the course of one week, in 1994, Derek committed three robberies. Altogether, he stole about $100 worth of stuff, including a winter coat. Derek was arrested following the third robbery and convicted of these crimes. And before I continue, I want to ask you, right now, to take a moment and imagine what you think a fair sentence for these crimes should be. And now I'm going to tell you the sentence Derek received. 32 and a half to 65 years in prison. stealing $100 to buy himself food, take shelter from the cold, and feed an addiction he couldn't control. By the time Derek's case came to me, he'd served 25 years of that sentence, and I felt strongly that he was an ideal candidate for a program I'm proud to have designed and implemented in the Brooklyn DA's office. Through a new post-conviction justice bureau, we reached out to incarcerated people whose release we might support. And Derek, along with his lawyer Elise and her team, asked our office to support first Derek's request for clemency and then parole. And late last year, the parole request was granted. Derek was finally released from prison this past January, just before the pandemic, and reunited with his daughter, Takiya Mosley, who works as a concierge right here in Manhattan.
3: You know, to be quite honest, I'm learning so much more about my dad now than I ever knew about him, you know, just growing up.
1: I was very grateful to connect with Takia so that I could learn more about the man whose case has been such a forceful call to action. So you were about seven or eight years old when he
3: was incarcerated? I was about seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. And, um... To be honest with you, I thought my dad like murdered someone. I, I thought that that was the case, and that's why he just wasn't here, or he was, he was gone.
1: What made you think that?
3: It was so much time. I'm like, mm-hmm. he's never. I'm never going to see him again. He's never going to be home. Did you know how long his sentence was? When I was young? No, no, I didn't know. I found out from doing some research on my own when I was in, I want to say, ninth grade of high school. I got like really, really curious, really trying yeah. to dig a little deep for myself to be like, what is the real reason? Why is he not here? Mm-hmm. And and I knew that asking my mother or you know, my grandmother, which is my dad, my dad's mother, I probably wouldn't get the answers that I was really seeking. As a kid, there's things that the family doesn't talk about. You know, like you're a kid, you don't need to know certain things, you don't need to know all the details. Um, that's how my family pretty much kept it. So like I said, I did some research and um, I looked up his, like his doc number or whatever, and um, found out that it wasn't, you know, the crime that I thought it was. And the time, the actual time that I saw, I remember it it was, um, it said 2020 for possible parole. And at that time, which was years ago, I was like, this is never happening.
1: As a teenager, that must have felt. Like, it's just in, impossible to It was calculate. heartbreaking.
3: Yeah, it was heartbreaking. And, and it was something I was just like, this is it. Like, that, I felt like just seeing that and reading that on the computer, it was basically a confirmation to me to kind of be like, this is your life, that's your dad's life, and that's just how it will be. I never thought the day, like, to think of the day as he would actually come home and I would see him and we would have a conversation face to face. I never I put it out my head at that that moment.
1: Did you see him in the years that
3: he was in prison? I did, because I had my mom and my grandmother to take me. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like it became a, I want to say at least once a month kind of weekend Mm -hmm. ritual. And what were those visits
1: like? How did you see him? How much time were you able to spend with him? So, uh,
3: first of all, you wake up super early. (laughs) <laughs> because um you have to go you know I'm coming I'm from, from Brooklyn so we're traveling upstate so we're waking up imagine a 10 year old having to wake up around like five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday not the best you know <laughs> the best mm-hmm. thing to do but yeah it would start around five o'clock we wait for like um some type of like van to come pick us up around maybe six and I felt like we went to like maybe two or three different boroughs gather other families and we would be at the prison by like probably maybe eight and wow. I felt like the ride there was longer than the actual visit the visit was short it was it was going through a string of checking with the you know with the COs and the searching and the patting down and the waiting and the signing the papers and it actually made me feel like a prisoner myself because you're going through like a cell to get in to visit the gate stands behind you. You know you're asked to step forward one by one, and it was kind of brutal. Now that I think about it, as a kid, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I I didn't look at it in its old entirety, but like it was pretty brutal. And literally, we had to wait a, a little while before my dad actually came downstairs or came to the gate. However, the inmates entered the visiting area we had to wait so that was part of the time that cut into the actual visit so it was it was those things where you like you want to just say everything really fast so you don't forget anything and you want to like try to recap on things that you know you've uh that happened since the last visit but and um my dad would just he would just be so happy he'd be so excited you know he wanted to like if it was like me, my mom, or just me, my mom, my me, my grandmother, and my sister, he wanted to like have a conversation with each of us, but then like together have a conversation. It was a lot. They felt like a long time in the sense that the whole day, the whole day started at five, and we would get back home around maybe five or six in the evening. But the visits wasn't wasn't long at all. They were like maybe maybe two hours. As a kid, it kind of wore you out.
1: You know, uh, Takia, as I listen to you, I'm so struck by how you remember these visits in such granular detail and the choreography of them and the steps it took to get inside and the stress you felt in, and it sounds like he felt in trying to squeeze everything into these visits. And yet, so much about it was incomprehensible. You didn't really know why he was there. Uh, In in all those years of your childhood um, or how long he was going to be there. I mean, did you do you think as a kid you just sort of assumed that your dad was going to be in prison forever?
3: Yeah, I just thought that that's what that's how it was. And I kind of put it in my head to accept that.
1: Yeah. And what so when you were in ninth grade um, or so and you found out how long his sentence was, was that also when you found out what he was doing time for?
3: I did. So I was able to see all the charges. I was able to see um, each date that he actually committed the mm-hmm. crime, um, see the sentencing. And uh, my dad had, unfortunately, he had an addiction to drugs back in, his, back in that time. And he did these crimes to fuel that addiction and not to make it as as an excuse, but that was the reason why he committed the crimes. And that pretty much took over his actions. So he committed these robberies, um, I guess, in his neighborhood. And reading the case files, I uh, found out that my dad only literally walked away in a, in those three days, that time frame, less than $100. No one was hurt. Uh, none of the victims were hurt or were like... Uh, injured. He didn't, you know, physically hurt them. He, he, he did banish a knife to one of them to like, I guess, scare them and, you know, ask for their wallet, but, um, he didn't physically assault them and it caught up with him. And, uh, I guess the judge felt like you, you need to be away for a very long time.
1: What do you think about the judge's
3: decision? It was pretty brutal.
1: Mm.
3: It was pretty brutal because, um, you know it didn't just destroy my dad's life. it destroyed everybody behind him, like in a sense of his family. It really took away a lot of my child- it took away my whole childhood. when I found out what it was, the sentence to me was like just- it seemed insane to me it seemed insane it seemed um unfair if I can use that word. it seemed unfair mm-hmm. it just seemed really harsh for the crime that was committed because in my eyes, I'm sitting here being eight years old, 10 years old, thinking my dad, you know, took someone's life away. I don't want to diminish the crime, but I want to say it was just a robbery that he walked away with less than $100. And um, I just think that it was just really, really harsh, a really harsh sentence. And
1: mm-hmm. So, Takia, your father eventually applied for clemency and ultimately mm-hmm. parole. Um, were you in touch with his lawyers while that was happening?
3: So, yes, the young lady, Elise, she reached out. My dad never gave the fight for his time or for his parole or for an earlier release. So when she reached out, I, I was like, OK, this is a good thing because I've never heard from his legal team. I, mean, I didn't know who was backing him. I never heard from anyone throughout the year. So for her to reach out and say, hey your dad might have a shot at this. You know, we just need, you know, family members to be on board, some support, and and she told me where they stood with things. That was like a breath of fresh air. It was actually, like, really shocking.
1: It was just out of nowhere somebody called you and said, I'm working on your dad's case?
3: Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much that's what it was. And like I said prior to that, nothing, th- nothing. It was just my dad communicating with me with, you know, the things that he had hoped for and the things that he was, he was working on. But once she reached out, I kind of seen, you know, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel that I always had the the date in my head, like the year 2020, but I never pictured it actually coming into fruition and actually happening until she reached out. And what ultimately happened she told me that my dad was applying for clemency, that, you know, the the governor, you know, would decide um, if that was able to happen for him. And she wanted letters of support and things like that to kind of push or, you know, provide more proof that this would be something that would be good for my dad and my family. We, we got it together. We all sent letters of support and, you know, asking for the governor to just mm-hmm. please grant my dad this time to be home with his family like he spent all this time away you know learning his lesson or what you know the lessons that um I guess I guess that judge at the time or whatever wanted him to learn he pretty much learned that what do you think
1: what do you think he learned
3: honestly (laughs) I think the biggest thing I, I swear I feel like the biggest thing my dad could have learned was was patience and just to have faith because if my dad would have really lost his faith he could have given up a long time ago. He could have succumbed to a lot of things that happen in in these facilities that um that people just people just let it just take over them. I would say swallow them whole. And he never did that. He always every time I spoke with him on the phone or via a letter, it was always a positive attitude. My dad never let his environment and his situation overtake him one day coming home to his family he just didn't he devoted some a lot of his time to the Islamic faith
1: mm-hmm. so
3: he learned their studies and their teachings and that helped him that helped him a lot because it became something to not only devote time to But to have purpose, you know, you you find purpose, and when you when you belong to something, or you you feel like you're a part of something, so it didn't just make it something. He was just there, just another human being, you know. It he had a brotherhood that was there to help him move along.
1: And Takia, he he was not granted clemency, but he was granted parole.
3: Parole, Mm -hmm. and
1: he got out uh, earlier this year, right in January yeah so my dad
3: came home. <laughs> uh, everything happened really, really fast um mm-hmm. over the course of over months when it just kind of like sped up really quickly. Um, when he came home, he actually he texted me from his lawyer's phone. and I want to say it was January ninth. I was at work, and um he's like, Hey, this is your dad.' I didn't know the number, but he's like, Hey, this is your dad. I just wanna let you know that I'm here in um in New York getting processing into like a um some type of facility, but I'm in the city. And I'm just like, like what? What's going on? What do you like what do you mean? So I called the number back and you know, his lawyer answered the phone and she, she gave me the details of everything and I was just like, I was like, I have to see him because I couldn't believe it. He wasn't too far from my job, thank, thank God. So I literally took a cab over there and I'm waiting outside of this, um, I guess it was like a man's facility or like a man's um, shelter home. And I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And I'm text. I'm like, I'm outside. Can you, know, can you come outside? And it was like a feeling of just like, you really just want to just see something for yourself. You want to just see, your, your mm-hmm. eyes want to see it, to believe it. Mm-hmm. And my dad stepped out it was, I can't even still explain it. it. was just like, I don't know. I just felt like a little kid. I felt like a little kid, like filled with glee, just like super excited, super ecstatic. Cause I've never been out. I don't remember like really being outside with my dad, like in the public, just <laughs> us. Wow. So we never had that. So this is like, unreal. But I was like, this is my dad. He's here. He's standing in front of me. Like he's giving me a hug. He's he's happy to see me. It was a it was a really good feeling. It was a really good feeling.
1: And what was life like with him after that reunion, Takia? Um
3: so beyond you know, aside from the emotions of excitement, um there was a process that my dad had to go through you know, when you come home, I guess, from prison and you you did a long, long bit of time, you have to readjust yourself, you know, get familiar with things that you wasn't familiar with and um, try to prioritize things. So there are steps that you need to take to get acclimated with the new world. So we went out a few times. I took him shopping because he had to get some clothes. He had to get, you know, you know, some new things, And um, we had some conversations just about how you know, he said, he was like, I'm not going back to that place. He, he was adamant about that. You know, he, he was happy to be home and he wanted to see everyone and, you know, meet his grandkids and things like that. Um, but I just had I just to explain to him, like, you know, you left so many years ago, dad. Things are not the same. Uh, family is not. Some family members have passed, you know, fam- some family members have moved. So it's not that tight knit situation that it was back mm-hmm. then, you know, and, and both of your daughters were both grown. So he tried to be proactive in our lives, but also trying to find his own way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to him, it was a lot. It, it, it really was a lot because you, you think about it, you have a routine that you do for close to 30 years of your life every single day. Your routine is then taken, not taken away from you, but now another door has opened for you to walk out that door and start a whole different routine, a whole different life. It just took a toll on him physically and mentally. Mm. It was fast paced. It was
1: mm-hmm. the
3: world he was in was fast paced, I wanna say, but my dad felt like he was still stuck. It was kinda like, okay, I know I'm home, but it's kinda like, how do I get my feet on the ground? And and T-Kia,
1: you lost your father not long after that. Is that right?
3: Yeah, so I passed away um, August 8th. So exactly eight months to the day he came home. (sighs) Um, It's so hard to deal with because it's just like, once again, it's something that I just, I didn't see that happen. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see, wasn't, wasn't prepared for that. But in my eyes, I felt like my dad might have struggled with some, some demons that um he had to suppress when he was locked up. Mm-hmm. And that's from his childhood, that's from, you know, different relationships he's had in the past, that's from his addiction, that's from just his sentences in general, and him dealing with, with the the crimes that he committed that ended him up where he eventually spent most of his life. Um, dealing with all those things and being home in this busy place, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it was a lot.
1: Uh, Takiya, can I ask you, how do you think the system failed your father?
3: One, I feel like by not treating him like a, like a human being, excuse me, um, I feel like he was just a number in the books. It pretty much was like, hey, this is what you need to be away from society. We deem you, you know, a very harmful person. So we're just going to put you away. When there could have been intervention, like, you know, they, I'm pretty sure in my dad's neighborhood growing up, there was no there was no real place if you had an addiction you know, to just be able to find that help and it, for it to be readily inv- and available. All three victims wrote a letter. To, yes, well, my, yes. You know, wrote a letter yes. in, in good faith for my dad. And that says a lot because even even one of them, they were like, they didn't even know he did that amount of time. They were like, they were actually shocked. And it was just like, wow, that's, that's a lot. You know, you know, this, let the man, let him go home.
1: Derek's story forces us to ask, how did our justice system produce a sentence that is so plainly unjust? Who else like Derek is in prison and should not be there? How can we make sure prison sentences are only as long as necessary to achieve public safety? How can people in positions of authority like the one I'm seeking do better? But beyond the questions of law and policy I just laid out, Talking with Derek's daughter also helped me understand the long-term impact of his sentence on a much deeper level. This isn't simply a policy question, it's a moral issue. And when we have these theoretical debates about what kind of punishment is appropriate for what kind of crime, it's imperative that we remember that the people impacted by our decisions are not theoretical. They're real people with real families like Derek and Takiya. I want to thank you so much for talking to us about him and just telling us about your life and what effect this
3: had on you. I'm glad my dad's story is heard. I'm glad, you know, someone's hearing it from someone he loved, if not from himself, you know, for me. It's, it's an honor to speak on him, to speak on his life, you know, because it, it did matter. His life did matter. His life was important. And, um, and you don't just want to give up on people. You don't want to give up on them because they have a family They come from somewhere, you know, and it affects the family. It it leaves the family broken for years. It feels good. It feels good to talk about him.
1: is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers Tally and Takia Mosley and James Forman Jr.'s appearances on the show do not constitute political endorsements. I'm running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all Especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tali 4 to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian Weinstein. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Hearing.
2: Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
0: Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight?